All right, Exodus chapter number 26. We're going to begin in verse number 30. It's um, actually kind of at the very end of a paragraph here and then jumps into a new paragraph. Um, but we're talking here about the, the construction of the, of the tabernacle. And we're going to jump off from here. And I want to speak on the subject of beyond the veil. So in Exodus 26, verse number 30, And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof which was showed thee in the mount. And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen of cunning work. With cherubims shall it be made. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of shittim wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches that uh, thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And thou shalt set the table without the veil and the candlestick over against the table on the side of the tabernacle towards the south. And thou shalt put the table on the north side. Our text this morning is the plan for the construction of the tabernacle of Moses. God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, brought them to Sinai. There he makes a covenant with them. He says, I will be your God. Here's what I want you to do. They said, we will obey these commands. He gives them the Mosaic law. It's a, law, it's a way of life. It's a way of worship. The apex of that law is the design of the tabernacle and its furnishings. It's a marvelous study. We, we just went through that a while back on Wednesday nights. And I'm going to tell you, that's one of my favorite studies I've ever done. And I still go back and use those notes. I used them to put this together because it's a quick reference on some of this stuff. So those are some of the handiest notes I think I've ever put together. So... Um, but anyway, the, the tabernacle itself, this, this building, it was, it was surrounded by a courtyard, fenced in uh, by, by like curtains. Not just anyone could enter that courtyard. There were strict limitations that God gave. The tabernacle itself was about 15 feet wide, about 45 feet long. And, and if we would read uh, the preceding verses, you would see it was constructed out of these gold-plated boards that would fit together and then covered over with a, 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 a few different kinds of like uh, tarps and curtains and things over the top of it. The inside of the tabernacle was divided into two sections. And there about two-thirds of the way back, there was this great veil, this great curtain, a large tapestry that closed off the back third. Not anyone could enter the tabernacle. The priests could enter into that first section where the uh, table of showbread was and the, the golden candlestick and the, the, the golden altar of incense. They could enter and they did it every day, morning and evening. They, they were in and out of there quite a bit. But beyond the veil was the Ark of the Covenant topped with the mercy seat. It is there between the golden cherubim that crowned the ark and the mercy seat that God's presence was real. God's presence was tangible. I've got some verses here I want to, I want to reference to you that talk about this. Exodus 25 talks about the construction of the, the ark and the mercy seat. It says, Thou shalt put the mercy seat 
above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony. In Leviticus 16.2, you'll find this phrase at the end. It says, For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. 1 Samuel 4.4, it says, So the people went to Shiloh, that they may bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. 2 Samuel 6.2, And David arose and went with the people that were with him from Baal of Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, that dwelleth between the cherubims. 2 Kings 19.15, and then the parallel passage in Isaiah 37 Hezekiah, it says, and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God and thou alone of all the kingdoms of the earth that hast made heaven and earth. Psalm 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, that thou leadest Joseph like a flock. Thou that dwellest between the cherubims shine forth. Uh, Psalm 99, 1. The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims, let the earth be moved. To go beyond the veil in the tabernacle was to enter into the presence of God on earth. Yes, I know God is everywhere. He's not confined to just one place. I am here. I'm not in Australia. I'm not on the moon. God's everywhere. He's not limited to one place. But He's just even more especially present in this place above the ark between the cherubim. In that place, the most holy place, some people call it the Holy of Holies, in that place only the high priest one day a year passed the veil and would enter. That day was the great day of atonement. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. We're going to reference that a lot. I'm not going to turn there, but that's the description of this day, of this great feast. On that day, the tenth day of the seventh month of Tishri on the Jewish calendar, the high priest could go beyond the veil. Now, if you've been on Facebook this morning and saw the church Facebook page, you already know what I'm going to say here. But today on the Jewish calendar is the ninth of Tishri in the year 5784. At sundown tonight begins the tenth day the Day of Atonement. The Jews call it now its Hebrew name, Yom Kippur. This holy day that the Jews still observe very differently begins tonight at sundown. Were you there in the days of the tabernacle or the days of the temple? Today would be a day of preparation. The high priest would be preparing. He would spend the night in prayer. He's got a lot to do on the Day of Atonement. In fact, you read it, he performs all the regular activities of the day. He does the regular morning sacrifice, the regular evening sacrifice. After the morning sacrifice, he he puts aside the special uh, golden garments that he would wear to mark him as the high priest. He puts on just the common white linen wardrobe of uh, of of a regular priest. The first thing he does to mark this day special. He kills a bull for a sin offering for himself and for the sins of the priesthood. He enters in to the tabernacle or the temple. He enters in and he goes 
he, he, he goes in there. He's got coals from the altar. He's got incense. He puts that on that golden altar in front of the veil. A cloud of incense begins to fill this space. He goes back out. He gets the blood of that bull. He goes and he sprinkles the blood before the veil. He goes beyond the veil before the ark. He sprinkles the blood before the ark. He could not intercede for the people's sins until his sins had been covered. There's two goats. There's a pair of goats that played into the sacrifice. One of them is killed. The high priest sprinkles its blood beyond the veil before the ark. The, the blood of the bull, the blood of the goat, they're sprinkled outside the veil and on the golden altar. The priest goes to that second of the goats. And that, the, the, the goat's a picture of the, the, uh, the, 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 what happens with sin in the atonement. The one through the shed blood covering it. But he goes to the second goat. We call it the scapegoat. He lays his hands on it. He confesses the sins of the nation. That goat is taken out into the wilderness and let loose, and nobody knows what happens to it. It's just let loose. It has a, like a ribbon thing around its neck to mark it so no one messes with it. And it's a picture of our sins being forgotten, gone. Not just covered, and we know where they're at, but they're completely gone. No longer to be located. The carcasses of the bull and goat are carried outside the city. They're burned as refuse and unclean. The high priest puts back on his golden uniform. He offers various sacrifices for the day. He puts back on the common priestly robes. He performs the evening sacrifice and then puts back on his, 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 kind of, uh, his, his pre high priestly garments. And for somewhere around 1,500 years, this was the yearly ritual, or it was to be. It was a day of remorse, a day of conviction of sin. And then it turned into a day of celebration once the, cel once the sacrifices were made. Now we know that those rituals, those sacrifices, could not truly atone for sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4, and by the way we're going to spend a lot of time in Hebrews, if you want to follow me, jump over there. Hebrews 10, 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Someone once described it, and this is about the best way to describe it, and it's not 100% accurate, but I kind of like this description. It's as if all those did was they would pay the interest payment, but they never touched the principle of sin. That's not exactly accurate, but it's an idea, because there's no effectiveness at washing our, our, our sins from our record through the blood of bulls and goats. The problem then is the same problem today. Same problem mankind has had since the Garden of Eden. It's sin. That sin separates us from God, just as it caused Adam and Eve to be driven from the Garden. The tabernacle is a grand object lesson on God's holiness. He is perfection. He is light. He is complete. He is pure. We are not. So there's a veil of separation between sinful man and a holy God. We have no right to enter into His presence in our depraved state. By the way, God's justice would demand our deaths would we encroach upon His holiness. 
Just look at those who did. Nadab, Abihu, Uzzah. When they were, uh, David was bringing the ark and he reached up to steady it on the cart. God says, no, no, you don't do that. You don't encroach on my holiness. Something God takes very seriously. But when you examine the tabernacle, its pictures, its types, its shadows, they, they begin to take shape. And the shape they take is the shape of a cross. And the book of Hebrews expounds on this idea Chapter 9, and actually chapter, basically chapters 8 through 10, some people say directly relate back to the Day of Atonement. But I'm going to pick up in chapter 9. Chapter 9 clearly draws the parallels between the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament of Leviticus 16 that I described to you to what Christ did for us on the cross. Hebrews 9, 6 And when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, that's the holy place, that first section, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second, that most holy place where the ark was, went the high priest alone once every year. That was on the Day of Atonement, the tenth of Tishri. Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, which is the first tabernacle was, which as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices. It could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. These these Old Testament sacrifices, they could not completely redeem. They could not purify a man from their sins, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them unto the time of reformation. That's the way it was. Looking backwards, he says, you look back at the way it was. They did these sacrifices pointing to something greater, something that could take away their sins. But now, we can look back and we know the rest of the story. We can see not just the shadows, but what casts those shadows. Uh, 9-11 in Hebrews. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, not of the earth, but of heaven, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He didn't need a sacrifice himself to go in. The high priest couldn't go in until he made sacrifice for himself. Then he could uh, go in as an intercessor for the people. Christ could go in boldly because he had no sin. He completely and perfectly fulfilled the law. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He was perfect. He was holy. He was complete. He didn't have to offer the blood of a goat or a bull or a lamb. He could offer his own blood. 9.13 in Hebrews For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth through the purifying of the flesh, how much more, that's a great phrase in Hebrews, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself uh, uh, without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He didn't have to offer His blood 
before, uh, in, in a, in, it didn't have to offer his, his blood before in a human-made tent or building. This is something greater than just something earthly. Verse 21, you're jumping down a little bit, it says, Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, uh, talking about the priest, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. They're saying the things here on earth are an echo, a shadow of something heavenly. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And that priest would step behind the veil. It was a symbol. It was a picture of what Christ would do. The priest would go in before God with the blood to make atonement that one day a year. And it was a picture of what Christ would do for us. And by the way, he didn't have to do it every year. He could do it once, once for all eternity. Verse 25 not yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For them must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. So well, then Jesus would have to continually suffer if that was the case. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation he came to be the perfect sacrifice all the all these pictures all these shadows all these signs and types of things to come christ came he perfectly fulfilled not once a year but once for all eternity his one-time sacrifice would obliterate sin unlike those shadows of the rituals before chapter 10, verse number 1 of Hebrews. For the law, having a shadow, a picture of good things to come, and not the very image of things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Well, you got to keep doing it. If it worked, why did you have to keep doing it? You had to keep doing it. You had to keep doing it because it didn't work. Because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. It says if this worked, they would they, their sins would have been gone. They wouldn't have the guilt of sin. For if it was possible, see, uh, sorry, verse three. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins. It says every year they're reminded of their sinfulness. Verse four. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and in sacrifice for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. This is talking about Christ. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering, uh, an offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which he offered by the law, or which are offered by the law. Verse 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second by the which we, will, we, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once 
for all. When Christ came, when he, when he, when he died, it was a one-time sacrifice. The pictures were once a year. But he came once for all to completely eradicate sin, to destroy it, not to put it off, not to roll it back, but to destroy it. His victory, the annihilation of sin and its deadly poison, was complete at Calvary, though it's not fully realized yet. We can completely overcome the penalty of sin now. When you get saved, you no longer fear the penalty of our sin, death and hell. And he, uh, he can help uh, us overcome, I've got a typo in there, He can help us overcome the power of sin. How do we overcome the sin in our life? He helps us do that. And then one day He will obliterate the very presence of sin. Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The priests, they did this every day, every day. What good did it do? Did it take away their sins? No, it pointed to the one who could. Verse 12, But this man, that's Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He didn't have to do it again. He didn't have to keep doing it. He sat down because the job was done. Victory was won. From, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. means there's still something in the works, still something in the works. He's going to be glorified. He's going to be the king of kings one day. Verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. He died once, and those who are his own are perfected, made perfect, sanctified, made clean, made pure through what he did one time. Whereof the, of the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds while I write of them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. There's no need to keep offering the sacrifices because the ultimate sacrifice, the fulfillment of the shadows had come. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. This is the crux of my message here this morning. The veil that separated the ark and the presence from God from the, the, in the temple, in, in the tabernacle, it represents that barrier between sinful man and the holy God. We could not cross it. There's nothing in our own power that we could do to make ourselves worthy to go beyond that veil. The only way the high priest could do it was through the cloud of incense uh, and then through the sprinkling of blood, through atonement, through uh, substitutionary sacrifice. That's the only way he could have the right to go beyond the veil. We can't cross that. But here's the wonderful thing. God could cross it. God could come to us. Christ came to this earth veiled in human flesh. Romans 8, 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We couldn't go to God, but God could come to us. Christ 
took upon himself a veil of human flesh. When on the cross his body, his veil of flesh was broken and torn to take away the barrier between God and man. What happened there on the cross, by the way? We know the story, all the different things that happened. Mark 15, 37 and 38, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, that great curtain that they had. And they say it was massive. They say it was beautiful. They say you could put oxen on either side and pull it. And it wouldn't rip, kind of like they did the jeans. Was that Levi's or used to have that little thing? They said this thing was massive. It was beautiful and it ripped top to bottom. It ripped the same time that the body of our Lord was ripped and torn and broken. It's a physical picture of a spiritual truth. Hebrews 10:19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus. Why can we do that? Because the veil has been torn away. That, separ- that separation is no more because of Christ. Verse 20, By a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh. Through the veil that is to say His flesh. And having an high priest upon, uh, over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Ladies and gentlemen, the shadows of the Day of Atonement perfectly picture the glorious atonement of Christ made for sinful man. Through His blood, through His offering, through His broken body, we have access to God's mercy and forgiveness like never before. Hebrews 4, 14-16 Seeing then that we have a, a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Can I say this morning, what a Savior we have. What a price He paid for us. What a salvation He offers to us. The veil that separated God in man is no more. We, sinful beings that we are, can be made righteous through the blood of Christ and have a true relationship with our God. Now as musicians come, I've got three quick things I want to show you from Hebrews 10.22. I've got three benefits from the atonement of Christ. In Hebrews 10.22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Through Christ's atonement, through the shedding of blood, through it covering our sins, we can have full assurance of our faith that the veil will no longer keep us from God's presence. Full assurance. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to worry. We don't have to hope that we did good enough. We don't have to worry that we lost it. We can have full assurance that that veil is completely torn away. It will never be put back up. 
Second, it says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's something the Old Testament law couldn't do. It couldn't cleanse the inside. But the New Testament in Christ can do that. We can have our hearts and our minds be free from the guilt of sin. We can press forward knowing we have peace with God. Knowing His love is compassion for us. And last, it says, in our bodies washed with pure water. Now, listen to some uh, Church of Christ guys will tell you, oh, that's baptism. That's not talking about baptism at all. What this is, is in those days, and with the, la- the golden laver, uh, uh, raisin laver, the things that they had there in the Old Testament, this is a picture of, it's those sins, you, you, you're just walking around in an old, dirty, sinful world, and you get something on you, and you just take the time to wash it away. This is being cleansed from the spots and the stains of sin that we encounter as we just go through this life. Let me tell you something. As we go through this life, do we still falter? Do we still fail? Absolutely. If you ever meet somebody say that they've attained sinless perfection, run from that joker. They're lying, number one. But when we go through, we don't have, Christ doesn't have to die again. The blood doesn't have to be reapplied. All we need to do is just, we need to wash up. We need to just wash up. God's forgiveness, God's love, God's compassion. We need to wash that stuff. Because it doesn't get in, it doesn't kill us, but it's on us. And we need to wash it up. Ladies and gentlemen, as this evening the sun sets and the Jews across this world Some of them already are, the way time zones work. They remember this day, the day when the high priest went in and beyond the veil to sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats to atone for sin. Remember, we have the greater. All those shadows, all those pictures, they're just arrows that point to the old rugged cross. We have the greater. I hope you know Him this morning. And I hope you know what He's done for you. Because I don't care how old you are. I don't care where you came from. I don't care your past. You could have been a choir boy. You could have been a mass murderer. I don't care. We can still all look up and marvel at what Christ did for us. Don't ever forsake. Don't ever forget the price paid for us. What number there, Owen? 318 in the Baptist hymnal. If you'd like to sing along with the invitation hymn, if you'll stand, please. We'll have a short time of invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a different style message than what I would would typically preach. But Lord, knowing the day and the hour, the the themes that that are so uh, on the mind of millions of people this time of the year, looking at all those who celebrate a day but yet fail to see the fullness of it. And here we stand through Your mercy, through Your grace, not wondering, not hoping, but knowing what Christ did for us. Knowing that our sins can be forgiven. Knowing we can have a home in heaven. What marvelous, marvelous grace it is You've poured out on us. I pray, Lord, that we 
take some time to see who we are, to ponder what we really deserve, and then marvel at that price that Christ paid and marvel at the blessings that He pours out on us as unworthy as we are. Lord, if those who may listen here online, someone who just never has heard this, never has known, Lord, that they get this settled before it's too late. They come to You knowing that the Christ of the cross can save their souls. Let us never forget the old rugged cross. Let us never forget the blood. Let us never forget our wonderful Savior. Challenge us, I pray, in this, in this invitation time with these simple thoughts in our holy name. Amen.